had together. Now I want to say something before we get started this morning. I'm going to specifically be speaking about marriage and about divorce. Now I realize there are a lot of folks in our society today who have went through divorce. Uh, some here in our church have as well. I want to make some things real clear uh, to you, folks, because I, I think at times that when a preacher or a church stands on what God's Word says about marriage and about divorce, that the church or the pastor, the preacher, they get a bad rap. I want you to understand something. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Okay? Uh, divorce is a sin like other sins, like lying, cheating, stealing. Uh, you say, well, I don't do any of that. How about covetousness? Does that hit home with you? You say, well, not really. Oh, yeah, you're human. There have been times you've coveted something. So we're all guilty of sin. I want that understood right up front. But talking about divorce and marriage, I think that we need to know what God's Word says about the marriage relationship. And the fact that I've been preaching on it for the last three weeks, that what God joins together, man should not put asunder. That's God's idea. That's God's plan. Okay? okay? Now... Having said that about divorce, I'm not getting down on people that have had a divorce. Too many times uh, they, they get the feeling that they're a second-class citizen in the kingdom and in the church. That was, that's just not true. Now, I realize there may be some people that make them feel that way, but a lot of times, let's be honest, we feel that way ourselves because of the guilt of sin. I mean, that's just the honest truth about it. But... If you have had a divorce, I'm not hammering on you this morning. I'm not saying uh, anything other than I love you and Jesus Christ loves you. And divorce can be forgiven just like any sin is forgiven. But now, having said that, I want you to know that divorce will never be in God's will and God's, and God's plan for your life. I can tell you that right up front. But I can tell you what God's will is for your life as far as marriage is concerned. You want to hear it? Whoever you're married to right now, God expects you to stay married to till death do you part. That's God's will. I can assure you that. Now, having said all of that, I want you to look at Genesis 23. Let's read these two verses. Verses 1 and 2. For the message, parting is not sweet sorrow. And Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kerjath Arba, the same as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Father, this morning, I pray that we will listen, that we'll be attentive, that we will, uh, God, take in to our heart beyond just listening with our physical ears and perceiving with our mind by your Holy Spirit, we will perceive it within our heart what your word is teaching us. We'll understand the significance, the importance of marriage, and we'll understand your plan. And Father, we will also understand the joy of a lasting marriage. In Christ's name, amen. Now folks, you know, every marriage begins with four words, and those four words are, will you marry me? But sad to say, many marriages today are ending with four other words, and they are, I want a divorce. I want to make it real clear, folks. I believe because people are not careful enough with those first four words, will you marry me, that they're too careless with the last four words. 
And those last four words, I want a divorce, I'm going to repeat what I said a while ago. There are four words God never intended to be heard in marriage. But these four words are heard far too often in our world today and sad to say far too often in the church today. Today, people don't see marriage as a lifetime commitment. Instead, they see marriage as rather some kind of 90-day option, pay-as-you-go type plan. And I mean, let's be honest, folks. If people today contemplate marriage at all, and many people don't contemplate marriage, people say, well, you know, preacher, the divorce rate is way down in our country. Well, it's not way down. But the reason it's down now as compared to, say, the early 80s or the mid-80s is because people are not getting married today. They're just living together. Okay, which God says is wrong as well. Now, having said that, folks, with people, if they do contemplate marriage at all, the prevailing attitude is that if the first marriage fails, I'll just keep getting married till I get it right. I ain't hear nobody agree or say amen. Is that not true? You know, it reminds me of a lady I heard about. Uh, she was married four times in her life. At first, she married a millionaire. Secondly, she married an actor. Then the third guy she married was a minister. And the fourth guy was an undertaker. Now, she, she carefully planned this out. And her friend asked her, said, Why did you marry four guys that are so different? You married a millionaire, an actor, a minister, and an undertaker. She said, Well, it's simple. I, I, married, uh, one, I married one for the dough, two for the show, Three to get ready and four to go. Well, let me ask you a question, folks. Whatever happened to till death do we part? Huh? Whatever happened to that? Today, it's till death or disappointment or disillusionment do we part. I think that Chuck Swindoll was right. I agree with <clears throat> something he said years ago. He said there are two processes that you should never enter into prematurely. One is embalming and the other is divorce. Now, the story, folks, of Abraham and Sarah that we have in the Bible, the story of their marriage together is one of the, the most romantic uh, marriage stories that there are in the Bible. I mean, they stayed together till death did they part. And what I want us to do today is learn some wonderful lessons from this precious couple in the Old Testament that will help us uh, become the husbands and the wives we need to become so we can come together, be together, and stay together. Because let me make it real clear, if you're going to beat the odds and maintain your marriage, you must take the task seriously. It must be, it must be something that you work at. Because the natural order of things in this world will not bring you together. It will try to carry you away from each other. I was reading some time ago about the Mississippi River. And you know, it's one of the most beautiful and powerful rivers in the world. And the Mississippi has a will kind of like a mind of its own, has a will of its own. Uh, about 70 miles past Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the Mississippi River has for years been trying to change its course. Now, the last time that it changed drastically was in the late 1800s or, or mid-1800s. But the Mississippi River is trying to change its course, and the government's been fighting a tremendous battle to keep that river from changing its course to a shorter and steeper descent to the Gulf of Mexico. Now, if the Mississippi River gets its way, what will happen will be catastrophic in that part of the country, that part of southern Louisiana. It would change forever. 
port cities like uh, New Orleans and Baton Rouge. They would lose their waterfront way of life. Towns would be wiped out and obliterated, wiped off the map. Uh, engineers say that billions and billions of dollars of damage would take place. And this is an ongoing struggle that's been going on for years, and the government has to constantly maintain it and keep a watch on it. Now from that, let me say this, the battle to maintain your marriage is just like that. You have to take it seriously, you have to keep a watch on it, and you have to constantly maintain it. And let me say this, even though you may think at times divorce is the only option, I want you to know something. Contrary to what William Shakespeare wrote in Romeo and Juliet, parting is not sweet sorrow when it comes to marriage. Now I want to show you several things. First off, I want us to consider about Abraham and Sarah's marriage. I want us to consider the memory of a lifelong marriage. Because look at verse 1, Genesis 23. It tells us Sarah was 127 years old when she died. And Abraham and Sarah, they loved each other to the end. They stayed together to the end. Uh, they weren't like one couple I heard about in the conversation they had. The husband asked the wife, he said, Hon, will you love me when I'm old and gray? She said, not only will I love you, but I'll write you wherever you may be. Now, folks, we know that this couple, that Abraham and Sarah, they had been married for at least 60 years. Because she's 127 years old when she dies, and she was 60 years old when they left, were called out of the land of Ur. But we also know that in biblical days, women married much younger, extremely young. Matter of fact, oftentimes the marriage arranged by the parents. So let's just have a conservative estimate here about this. Let's say she was married at 20, which history probably teaches she was married a whole lot younger than that. But let's just, for round figures, let's say she was married at 20 years old. That means that her and Abraham were married for over 100 years. Ladies, I think you'd agree with me. That's a long time to pick up anybody's socks. 100 years. One of the keys, when you study the life of Abraham, one of the keys of Abraham's success, folks, one of the primary reasons why Abraham was a successful man was because he had a successful marriage. So men, let me say this to you. You want to be successful? Then I want to advise you to have a successful marriage. Town and, uh, Town and Country Magazine Sometime back, they did a study of the presidents of the top 100 companies and corporations here in America. And from this study, you know what they found out? I thought this was pretty interesting. They discovered, they didn't find a picture of executives, you know, who were shuffling from one wife to another, always looking for a newer model. No, what they found was that these successful corporate presidents had a divorce rate of only 5%. 5%. The study concluded then that, a, and I'll quote it, that a strong marriage is a great contributor to a man's success. Now Abraham certainly had a successful marriage because he had such a sweet mate, such a, a wonderful wife, but now he's lost her. We're at this point in Abraham's life, he has lost her and his heart is crushed. Now can you get this picture? Abraham has lost his lifelong love. In childhood, you know, as sweethearts, I'm sure he wooed her and won her and married her. They had walked together from the sunrise of their life to the sunset of life. And they had shared heartaches and headaches together. Now the reason I say heartaches and headaches, because no marriage is perfect. Amen? Do you ever have heartaches and headaches in your marriage? Oh, some of y'all are so spiritual.
questions like that. Now, I know it's true, we all do. Now, many of you have been coming on Wednesday nights as we've been studying through the book of Genesis, and we know from studying the life of Abraham that he and Sarah, they had some heartaches. They had some headaches together. Uh, they had their ups and downs. I mean, think about this. Sarah had to put up with Abraham's cowardice down in Egypt when he denied that he was her husband. Uh, Abraham had to put up with a concubine, Sarah's maidservant Hagar, who Sarah convinced Abraham to father a child with. Abraham had to learn the hard way that one woman is a gracious plenty for any man. They both, folks, had to put up with conflict in their marriage, uh, eventually having to have Ishmael, Abraham's son by Hagar, leave. They had the problems, but here's what I want you to see. Every marriage has their problems. But here's the point I'm trying to get across to you. They did not make it a hundred plus years by chance. It was by choice. They hung in there. I mean, they stayed together till death did them part. They knew uh, in marriage, you know, the old saying is true. Winners never quit and quitters never win. They lived together, loved together, laughed together, learned together. But they'd no longer be together in this earth because Sarah has died. Now look at verse 2. What a sad verse that is. And Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, the same as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And then notice these words. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Can you just see this? This gray-headed, uh, long, gray-bearded patriarch. And hot tears of grief are running down his face and falling on his wife's body. His spirit's sagging, his heart's broken. Why? Because the love of his life is gone. She's shaken off the shackles of this earthly form. She's taken her heavenly flight. And his heart is breaking. No more are they going to sit hand in hand in the evening and watch the golden sun set in the western sky. No longer are they going to wake up in each other's arms and see the golden sunrise in the eastern sky. He would no longer see that twinkle in her eye. No longer would he see the smile on her face that for over a hundred years had lifted his heart and lighten his load every day. She's gone. Now, I want to say this. We need to understand this. Abraham's not weeping for Sarah because he knew where Sarah was. Dr. Vance Havner, the old Baptist preacher, mountain preacher, after his wife had died, somebody came to him and said, Dr. Havner, I was so sorry to hear you lost your wife. And with a smile, Dr. Havner said, Oh, no, nothing to it. He said, Nothing is ever lost when you know where it's at. Well, Abraham was not weeping for Sarah. He knew where she was at. He was weeping for himself because all he had left now were memories. But here's the thing about it. I bet his heart was blessed even though his wife was gone with those memories because they were memories of a lasting marriage. Now I can just imagine Abraham. He was glad how he kept his vows and how he kept God's command of one wife for one life. He didn't have to look back over a life and see it littered with casualties of a broken marriage and a broken home. He had given his children the greatest gifts that a parent can give any child. That's a stable marriage, a solid home, and a godly example. The next thing I want you to see that I want to point out to you are the spouses or the mates of a loving marriage. Now, you may know this. Uh, I wasn't really shocked when I read it. But you know, experts have concluded there are only two causes of an unhappy marriage. You know what those causes are? Men and women. <laughs> 
Well, let me say this. This marriage of Abraham and Sarah was a lasting marriage because it was a loving marriage. And both Sarah and Abraham set an example of the kind of husband and wife that can make for a happy marriage. And when you study their life, each one of them brought their own unique contributions to the relationship. Now, the first thing I want to do, I want to talk to you ladies first. Usually, I talk to the men first. Hmm. This morning, I want to talk to you ladies first. And so the first thing I want us to do is to consider Sarah's spirit. You know, Sarah was one of the best loved and most beautiful women in history. She had, a, 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 she had been a marvelous wife, a marvelous mate for Abraham. Now I say that because, listen, nowhere in the Bible do you ever read or you ever told to look at Mary, the mother of Jesus, as an example of a godly wife. But you realize the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 51 too, that looked to Sarah as an example. And then in the New Testament, a preacher by the name of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he says Sarah is a model wife that every wife would do well to look at as their guide. So wives, listen to me. You're going to see the key to being a great wife is not really so much how you look on the outside, but how you look on the inside. And what's on the inside shines through, and that's what makes a woman beautiful. That's why Sarah was such a beautiful woman. I want you to look, uh, do something with me. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I know you're familiar with this passage, but this is where Peter... Give Sarah as an example. In verse 6, even as Sarah. Okay, everything he's saying, he's talking about Sarah being an example. So let's look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. And ladies, I want you to understand, number one, Sarah had a submissive spirit. Because look at verse 1, the first part of verse 1. It says, likewise your wives be in subjection to your own husbands. Sarah was totally submissive to Abraham. Now I know, women today, many times they take exception to the concept of submission. And many women say, no, that's demeaning, that's condescending. But understand something, in God's plan for marriage, the goal of submission in marriage is not to reduce a woman to a doormat or to a second-rate person. It's to provide an authority structure in the home, in the marriage. You understand what I'm saying with that? God does not see you, women, as a second-rate citizen. Now, let me explain it this way. In any business organization, high productivity and good morals, they result from a clearly defined authority structure and a good relationship within that structure. So, when employees submit to the authority of the structure, the organization prospers. When they don't, morale gets low, productivity falls, and many times the business fails. Likewise, when a marriage doesn't run by God's authority structure, moral and productivity goes way down. And there is no happiness in the marriage. Now let me say this. I always get asked at this point, anytime, or you're thinking about asking this later, or you'd like to ask this, so I'll just go ahead and answer it for you, okay? That way you don't have to ask. I'll answer it for you. It says, likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Somebody will always ask this question. What if... My husband is a mean, ungodly man. Well, then it's even more important that the wife be submissive. It's tough to take, isn't it? You say, wait a minute, are you saying that a woman, if she's being abused, no, no, you misheard me. I'm saying your husband's hard-headed, he's a nodhead, he does his own thing, maybe he's not a Christian. I didn't say anything about physical abuse. 
Now, I know that's been a discussion as of late. So let me just tell you, as your pastor, if you don't know where I stand on this, I've had many times people come and visit with me seeking pastoral counseling about marriage and abuses involved. And the first thing I'll tell the lady is, if there is physical abuse going on, if you're in fear for your life, you need to get out of that situation. I'll never counsel somebody to get a divorce. But you need to remove yourself from that situation until your husband gets help or God gets a hold of him and changes him, which would be even better. But you do not stay in that violent situation. Is that clear? Again, I'm not going to counsel anybody to get a divorce because when you get a divorce, you're saying, God, you're not big enough to handle my problem. I'll take matters into my own hand. I won't do that. But I will tell them, you need to get out of that situation. And I've done that more than once over the years. And I'll say this, this is my own opinion, this is not God's word, this is my opinion. It would abuse beat his wife or be beat himself. I'm going to let it go with that. Because that's a whole other sermon, actually soapbox, that's not a sermon, I can't do that. Uh, but Sarah's sweet spirit. Now, back in 1 Peter 3 verse 1, uh, it's makes it clear, women, that you're to be in submission to your husbands. You say, why? Well, let's read verses 1 and 2. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation, that means the godly conduct, of their wives. Why? And listen, verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. In other words, what Peter is saying is that even without a word being spoken by your godly life that you live in front of them, they'll see it. And God will get a hold of their hearts. That's simple, uh, simple interpretation of that. Now ladies, having said that, I want to say this. You women, listen to me. If you have a lost husband, I want to give you some advice. You are not going to nag, lecture, or preach your husband into the kingdom of God. It will not happen. Matter of fact, oftentimes some husbands are kept away from the kingdom of God by nagging wives. So I don't really like hearing that. Well, hold on, I'm, I'm not done yet, okay? One man said things really do change in a marriage from the first year to the 20th year. His buddy said, what do you mean? He said, well, first year that I was married, I'd come home from a hard day's work. He said, my little dog would run around the house barking at me and my wife would bring me my slippers, my house shoes. He said, after 20 years of marriage, I come home from work, my little dog brings the house shoes, and my wife runs around and barks at me. Now, having said that, I know many Christian wives have pure motives. They have great intentions. But let me say something, ladies. Instead of barking at your husband, try praying for your husband. And let God make the changes in him. Ruth Graham said this. She says, my job to love Billy, it's God's job to make him good. Sarah had a submissive spirit, also a sensitive spirit. Look at verse 3 and 4. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning, the plating, the hair, and the wearing of gold, or a putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man, talking about the inside man of the heart, in, which, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, and I love this, which is in the sight of God of great price. That means it is very, very precious in God's sight. You know why Sarah was so beautiful on the outside? Because she was so beautiful on the inside. Now, <laughs> I want to say this. The only beauty that really lasts is inward beauty because outward beauty eventually fades away. We all know that. Amen? I mean, why do you think that cosmetic surgery is such a booming business nowadays? 
that outward beauty fades. But I've discovered something. That inward beauty can make a woman permanently beautiful. Let me explain it this way. And, and, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I'll illustrate it like this. I've been around women who I really didn't pay any attention to or take notice of at first. And then I got to know them and I saw how sweet, how pleasant, and how godly their spirit was. And I'm telling you, they became beautiful. But I've also been around other women who according to worldly standards, they were extremely beautiful outside, but then they opened their mouth. They opened their mouth and they showed the spirit of their heart. And I'm going to tell you, instantly, that beauty began to dissipate and begin to fade. And so I guess, I guess, ladies, the point I'm making is this. If you want to be beautiful, then make up your heart before you make up your face. Sarah also had a servant spirit. Look at verse 5 and 6. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Sarah not only respected Abraham, but she obeyed Abraham. Now here's another word that causes a lot of problems with a lot of folks today. A lot of women are like, I'm that word obey, I want nothing to do with it. Well, let me tell you what the word obey, what it carries here. It gives the idea of paying attention to. So having said that, let me say this. Obedience alone is not going to warm a man's heart. You need to pay attention to him. You need to meet his needs emotionally, physically, mentally, and domestically. I know today women say, I don't like that. Your choice, I'm telling you what God's word says. Now, both Abraham and Sarah had learned through the years that you do not marry somebody so you can get something from them. You marry them so you can give to them. That's what, that's what a marriage is all about, is it not? You marry somebody, you're going to put them first. Every wife ought to ask God to give her that same sweet, submissive, servant spirit that Sarah had. Now, that I've talked to women, guys, it's your turn. Let me talk to you for a few minutes. I want you to look at verse 7. And we're going to talk about Abraham's uh, attributes to this marriage. You say, wait a minute, Abraham's name's not even mentioned here. I realize his name's not specifically mentioned, but Peter in mentioning Sarah, I think he obviously was thinking of Abraham because the next thing he says after he talks about Sarah in verse 7 is he gives the traits of a good and godly husband. So look at verse 7, 1 Peter 3 verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Do you know, guys, do you know what the word husband really means? The word husband comes from two words, house and band. So what it's speaking of, a husband is a band that reaches around the house to protect it, to provide for it, to defend it, to hold it up, and to keep it together. And Abraham was a husband par excellent. Now he made some mistakes, but he had a marriage that lasted over a hundred years. He was doing something right, okay? And men, if you'll give to your wife what uh, Abraham gave to Sarah, you'll have a happy wife. And I don't know about you, but my life is happy when my wife is happy. First of all, she had his presence. Peter says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with him. Now the word dwell means more than just, just to live with. Husbands and wives in this verse were described as heirs together. Now heirs are people who share and share alike. 
So listen, there's a difference between living with your wife and sharing your life with her. So men, I'm talking to husbands here, or those maybe that hadn't been married yet, but you're going to get married. I want you to listen to me. Your wife or future wife is not only to be your lover, she's to be your best friend, your partner, your number one counselor, and your most trusted advisor. That's one of the reasons I've been out of balance for the past month. Because Marcia's been gone. You say, I hadn't noticed it, preacher. You had not been around my house much, have you? Ask Hannah if she's noticed it. Now, too many husbands, what they do, they live in a home, but they're never there. Even when they're home, they're not home. Guys, listen to me. You must give your wife your true presence. What I mean by that is you must not only be there with her, you need to be there for her. She had his presence. She had his patience. Notice again, verse 7. It says, uh, for we are to dwell with him according to knowledge. That, that just simply means understanding. The ESV translates it this way. The ESV translates it says, we're to live with our wife in an understanding way. Now I know even though it's difficult, no man, guys, and it's just the truth, no man should ever quit trying to understand his wife. I realize that's a complicated chore. But you shouldn't quit. You ought to continue striving to try to understand her. Because if you're going to meet her needs, then you're going to have to try to find out what makes her tick. You know, years ago, I read a great practical book. It was written about 30 years ago by a guy named Professor Stephen Covey. And the book was entitled, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Anybody else ever read that book? It was published back in the 80s. And I'm going to tell you something. One of those seven habits was this. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. If you're going to understand your wife, let me give you a clue, guys, that will help you understand her. And we've already touched on this two weeks ago, but I want to touch on it again. Men, a man's greatest need in marriage, according to all the experts, is sexual fulfillment. A woman's greatest need, according to all the experts, is affection or attention, depending on which study you read. But I look at it like this. Affection and attention go hand in hand together. Now let me say this. Your wife needs your attention. If you're going to understand her and live with her in an understanding way, then let me tell you something. You're going to have to talk to her. And you're going to need to listen to her and share your life with her and let her share her life with you. One woman said about her husband, said, uh, said my husband pays so little attention to me, if I died, I doubt he could identify the body. I think a lot of women feel that way. It's amazing, fellas, and let's be honest, how we'll pay attention to everybody except the one who means the most to us. I'm telling you, men, your wives need your attention, but they also need your affection. Now, I know because I've said this before, when I say affection, the average man thinks sex. Well, you cannot have sex without affection, but you can have, have affection without sex. And if you happen to be sitting here right now this morning, and guys, you're thinking, well, what is the difference? Then you must not have been here the last three weeks. If you've been here the last three weeks and you're still thinking, well, what's the difference between affection and sex? There's a good Greek word for you. You know what that word is? Knucklehead. Oh. Guys, here's the honest truth. Your wife needs your love before she needs your love making. What I mean by that, your wife needs to know that you love her and that you love her more than anything or anyone else. So guys, I'm going to ask you the question. 
Does your wife know that you love her? And does she know you love her more than anyone or anything else? You need to tell her. And not just tell her, but you need to show her. I heard about a wife who had reached her limit, her frustration limit with her husband. It was the end of football season. You know where I'm going with this. And for weeks, he had sat glued to the TV every Saturday and Sunday and just ignored her. She had had all she could take. She come in and planted herself in front of the TV and stomped her foot. And she said, I want to know, and I want to know right now, do you love me more than football? There's a long pause. And her husband looked up with a sheepish grin. He said, well, honey, I love you more than hockey. <laughs> Listen to me, guys. Abraham gives Sarah his presence, patience, attention, affection, but also, I believe, his praise. Because notice what Peter says in verse 7. He says, give honor unto the wife. Guys, if you do not have that word honor highlighted, underlined, or circled in your Bible, you need to do so. Do you know what that word honor means? That word honor means precious. Precious. So, we're to let our wives know constantly how precious they are to us. We're to praise them. And men, praise your wife. Even if it scares her, to start with, because you have never done it, go ahead and praise her and continually praise her. Guy went to eat supper with a buddy from work because his wife and kids had gone to visit some relatives. So he's eating supper with his buddy. They first walked in the house. His friend grabbed his wife and, man, he kissed her and said, Honey, you look great tonight. And then at dinner, he praised and bragged on her cooking. And after the meal, he said, Honey, that was a fine dinner. I sure appreciate it. He said, I'm so lucky that you're my wife. And he kissed her again. Well, his buddy did come to eat with him. Before he left, he said, man, i got to ask you, do you do that all the time? The guy said, yes, sir. Every chance I get, he said, he keeps my marriage strong and happy. Well, it impressed this other guy, so he thought, well, I'm going to use this same procedure with my wife tomorrow night. Well, after work, he come in, into the house, and walked in the door. First thing he did was sweep his arms, his wife up in his arms and give her a passionate kiss. And he said, sweetheart, you look wonderful tonight. I'm so lucky to have you as my wife. Well, his wife stared at him with wide-eyed amazement. Didn't say anything for a few moments, and then she just busted out and started crying. He was like, what? what? You know how men, how we do? What? What? what did I do? What happened? For peace's sake, honey, what's wrong? <coughs> she said, oh, it's just been a horrible day. She said, Johnny sprained his ankle at football practice, had to take him to the doctor. I forgot and left the washing machine running, got home, it broke, it's flooded the entire basement. And she said, then to top it off, you come home drunk. <laughs> Guys, listen to me. Listen now, praise your wife. Every chance you get, let her know how precious she is to you. Amen? There's another thing. I believe Sarah also had his prayers. Peter, all of this was necessary because notice verse 7. Peter tells us so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, you ought to pray for your home, with your home, and over your home. You're the spiritual leader in your house. You set the spiritual temperature. Pray for, with, over your home. And I, I'm going to say this. Prayer would hinder a whole lot more divorces if more prayer were prayed in the marriage. I think Martin Luther summed it up perfectly. He said, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. There's a final thought I want to give you real quick. 
And that's the, the master of a lasting marriage. Now Abraham and Sarah, their marriage, the only sword that was sharp enough to cut the marital bonds, the marital cord was a sword of death. You see, there's what was a threefold cord. And this marriage, was, the reason I say threefold, it was made up of Abraham, Sarah, and God. And the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 4.12 that a threefold cord is not quickly or easily broken. Think about this. For a hundred and something years, they had walked together, worked together, wandered through the land of Canaan together, but they had been welded together because they worshipped together. The glue that held them together was God. Let me share a passage with you. Write it down or turn back and look at it. You know what the real secret to their longevity in their marriage was? Genesis 18, 19. This is where God, what He says about Abraham. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him. He may set the example, is what God is saying, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. God was at the center of Abraham's life and thereby he was at the center of Abraham and Sarah's marriage. God had brought them together, had joined them together. God's the one that kept them together. And I'm going to repeat something that I have said several times over the past three weeks. What God joins together is never to be separated. You know, statistics, depending on which one you read nowadays, you can get all kinds of numbers say that two out of five marriages in America end in divorce. But I want to promise you something. If a husband and a wife know the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have built their lives separately upon Christ, and then together their marriage built upon Christ, and they pray together, they study God's Word together, they worship together, and together they are growing toward Jesus and toward each other and stronger I can assure you they'll never become one of those statistics. But they'll have a marriage that will last till death do their part. I'm going to say this and I'm done. The courts may grant divorce. Hollywood may glamorize divorce. You know, all your friends may be getting a divorce. But I'm going to tell you again, parting is not sweet sorrow. Listen to me, Christian. Build your life and your marriage on Jesus Christ. You pray together, play together, and stay together for the glory of God. Would you bow your heads, please? Now, I don't know what, with every head bowed, we're going to have a, a time invitation for just a minute. I don't know my, what may be going on in your marriage. Maybe you're having problems. Maybe your marriage is great. If it's great, then praise God for it. Thank God for it. If, if you're having some problems, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to make sure, first of all, that your life is surrendered to Christ. And if your life's where it needs to be, you, that should lead you to make sure your marriage is surrendered to Jesus Christ. Now, I know there is a lot of counselors, there's a lot of programs, there's a lot of processes you can go through to build and strengthen your marriage. But I, I don't know if any of those work. I can promise you that Jesus Christ does. If you'll build your life and your marriage upon Him, you say, I'm trying, but my mate won't. You do what you know to be right. And you keep praying for your husband or your wife, praying that God will get a hold of their heart. You take care of you and let God take care of what you can't take care of. Father, I thank You. I thank You for marriage. I thank You 
for the instructions that you've given us concerning marriage. And Father, I'm thankful for the marriage that I have and the, and the wife that I have. And Father, I pray for those here this morning who maybe they're, they're having problems in that area. Father, I pray that what's been said would, would take root in their heart and would begin to bear fruit in their life and in their marriage. Father, I pray that each person here would know the importance of having their life surrendered to and built upon Jesus Christ. And in turn, they would know the importance of having their marriage surrendered to and built upon Christ. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your grace reaches beyond any of our faults. I pray for those today that need to make a decision, whether it's to rededicate their life or to once and for all surrender their life. I pray today they would do so in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand, please. Don't forget the special service tonight at 6 o'clock, special service and special time in our church, but also in the life of uh, Van and Teresa Stuckey and their family as we uh, ordain him into the deacon ministry. So I encourage you to be back here at 6 o'clock. Once again, the ordaining council will meet at 5 over in Brother Jeff Smith's Sunday school class. The ordaining council is open to any man that has been ordained into the ministry, the deacon, or a pastor, or whatever that may be. Any other announcements before we dismiss? Anything Damon or I missed this morning? All right, let's pray we'll be dismissed. Father, again, thank you for your great love and grace. Thank you for your word, how it instructs us, uh, how it convicts us, how it lifts us up. Father, how it brings hope and encouragement to us.
I thank you that we have that great privilege to come together and to study your word, and I pray we never take it for granted. Father, I pray for the families that are here, the homes that are represented. My prayer as pastor is that the home would be built upon Jesus Christ, upon your word. Father, bless us as we leave this place. Bring us together again tonight in Christ's name. Amen.